You are listening to the Effective Statistician Podcast, a weekly podcast with Alexander Schacht and Benjamin Pieske designed to help you reach your potential, lead great science and serve patients without becoming overwhelmed by work. Today I'm talking with Lena about adherence and what is state of the art now. And before we dive into this, I want to mention that currently the Effective Statistician Leadership Program with the Mastermind is available to enroll. We offer this program only once a year. Otherwise, it's only for kind of companies that want to purchase tens or twenties of slots on it. But now you as an individual can enroll. It will only open again end of next year. So head over to theeffectivestatistician.com, learn more about the OSIS leadership program, which is exactly designed for people like you and see whether that is something for you. I'm sure if you haven't had a chance to look over it, this will be interesting because there's over 300 people that already went through the program and really had a lot of success with it. So check it out on theeffectivestatistician.com. And now some music. Adherence is such an important topic and today I'm talking with Lena, who is an absolute expert in this area. She's a psychologist by training, and it is so important because, you know, if you think about S demands and all these kind of different things, for anything that is related to treatment and that is not just policy S demand, that is really, really important because if you don't know whether people have taken the treatment, well, how can you? To any kind of on-treatment estimate. So stay tuned for this really, really nice episode. I'm producing this podcast in association with PSI, a community dedicated to leading and promoting the use of statistics within the healthcare industry for the benefit of patients. Join PSI today to further develop your statistical capabilities with access to the video-on-demand content library, free registration to all PSI webinars, and much, much more. Head over to psiweb.org learn more about PSI activities, become a PSI member today. Welcome to a new episode of The Effective Statistician. Today, I'm talking with Lina Eliasson. I hope I pronounced that correctly. Hi, Lina. How are you, uh, hi, Lina, how are you doing? <laughs> hi, Alexander. Yeah, that sounds pretty good, that pronunciation. It's Lina Eliasson. So I'm a chartered psychologist and founding partner at Sprout Health Solution, which is a specialist agency that supports pharma and biotech companies with clinical outcomes assessment strategies for clinical trials, as well as development of patient services. And really everything we do is about the patient voice, you know, bringing that to the forefront of drug development and the real world. So what did you study actually? Uh, so I actually studied well, psychology and I specialized, I did my PhD in adherence to oral oncology drugs at UCL School of Pharmacy. So yeah, that's really where the interest comes from. Cool. Yeah. I'm really interested in psychology for various reasons. One of the things is I worked in the psychiatry space for quite a long time. Mm -hmm. And then every kind of psychiatrist, well-known psychiatrist has a psychologist that uh, helps him and that was always kind of, I don't know about statistics, but my psychologists, they do know about statistics. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. so 
I always felt like, oh, there's a really, really nice connection with psychology. And the other thing is, whenever, you know, I think about leadership and influencing on all these kind of things, mm-hmm. there's so much psychology in there. So maybe in my in my next life, I'll study psychology instead of statistics. <laughs> but I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, no, that's right. Really, studying psychology, I say to any young people that speak to me about it, they open so much doors. There's so much you can do beyond, you know, the classic therapist base. So it's a really exciting field. Yeah. And so you already started very early on kind of thinking about adherence. That's the topic of today. Where did that come from? Do you have kind of initial story that kind of triggered that? Yeah, um, so I started my PhD was in 2006. I don't know if I just said, but GCL School of Pharmacy. And this time, there wasn't a lot of research in adherence in the oncology space. So there were some studies in terms of maintenance therapy for breast cancer, but that was about it. And the first golden bullet medicine had hit the market a few years earlier. So, so you probably heard about it. It was Imatinib, which was a tyrosine kinase inhibitor to treat chronic myeloid leukemia. And there was this curious situation that patients who did respond to imatinib, which was, you know, most of them, I think some 80% or so, but they tend to plateau at different levels. And so some had CML disease that were undetectable, others have some detectable disease, and yet others didn't do really well at all. And, you know, all over the world, research teams were looking into what might cause this difference in response. And the team that I collaborated with, which was led by David Maring, who at that time was at Imperial College London, he had this idea that perhaps people plateaued at different levels because some of them didn't take the drugs as prescribed. And, you know, this was hugely controversial. People were saying, of course, of course, cancer patients take the treatment as prescribed. They have cancer. And, you know, this is an oral treatment. It's easy to take. Side effects were mostly low grade, which, you know, clinicians said that people should just accept, you know, it was a golden bullet. But yeah, we did a trial, monitored patients over three months. And sure enough, adherence rate was the strongest predictor of response. And it was quite interesting, the expert community, they responded by saying, oh, look at them at the Hammersmith Hospital, which is where the trial was run. They have a problem with adherence, but we don't at our. You know, it was uh, it was quite amazing. But the body of evidence grew, the extent and impact of non-adherence to imatinib and also then to all other oral oncology drugs. And, you know, the community had to accept that non-adherence was indeed a pervasive challenge. And even when we look at life-saving cancer therapies, so... And it got me hooked. <laughs> you know, I'm still here. <laughs> yeah, I can completely relate to that. In the early 2000s, I was working on HIV. And it was, you know, the protease inhibitors, drugs that really changed the kind of life expectancy for uh, HIV patients, were introduced just a couple of years earlier and also working on such a drug. And so I got more into this HIV community and all these drugs are also, you know, orals. Yeah, it's more or less easy to take. And of course, kind of AIDS is a really, really severe disease. Also 100% mortality rate (laughs) and there's no cure from it. So you would think like, well, of course patients take that drug. But no, there is a problem with adherence. And there are some studies that were done in in prisons 
where yeah. people ob directly observed how the patients were taking the pills, yeah, oh. each pill. And in these studies, response rates were dramatically better than in kind of these usual studies where patients take their pill homes. And so adherence plays a really, really big role, even in these really severe uh, diseases like oncology or HIV. Yeah. So even if we think about it, like you said, oh, side effects, well, you know, your life is at, at risk. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Don't worry about these side effects. Well, it's always in relationship to kind of all the other things. And of course, we know from our personal lives, we know what healthy lifestyle looks like. Yeah. Do we adhere to it? No. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me a little bit more about adherence in clinical trials and what research you have done in that part. Yeah, well, you often hear that adherence is perfect in clinical trials. The evidence shows that suboptimal adherence is common in this setting too. And it's a huge problem. Non-adherence in a, in a trial setting affects the quality of the trials, it affects the cost of the trials, you know, the lost opportunities because we have unduly large sample sizes in the trials. And, you know, there are examples of trials that have been discontinued or seen as failure as treatment effect hasn't been shown. But, you know, post-hoc analysis indicate that this was because many participants didn't actually take the drug as intended. And, you know, if you do not measure adherence, but instead make an assumption that adherence is more or less perfect in your analysis, but it isn't, you know, this skews both efficacy and safety data, you know, it can confound dose response estimations and skew results towards overestimating dosing requirements. You know, I think about 20-30% of all drugs approved since the 1980s have been dose adjusted post-market authorization and up to 80% of those is dose reduction. So it's really a suggestion. And I think it also speaks to the point you had about HIV. That is an issue about patients not being adherent to their trial treatments. Yeah. And maybe it's better to be adherent to a lower dose than to be non-adherent to a higher dose. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. It's interesting you say that because one of the patients at the Hammersmith, he he had exactly that. So he, he was non-adherent and, and, and we knew it. And, you know, we opened up a discussion with him about it. And he was on 80 milligrams imatinib, which some of the patients who were in the trial, original trials of imatinib and who were on 800, they would be kept on that after the trial had finished during their sort of follow-up period and when we chatted with him he just said look I just have to take breaks sometimes because I can't manage the side effects and then you know they reduced him down to 400 milligrams and he was saying to me you know I'm really trying to take it now every day because I really wanted to work on this lower dose and of course now 400 milligram is the is the standard dose for imatinib but so I think you can really make a difference and sort of adjust dosing to a lower dose that might be more, you know, safer for patients to take. Yeah. And you should know that from the trials. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. It's also kind of just as a side note, of course, that means you need to have some discussions about which estimate you are yeah. actually, you know, interested in. So with a treatment policy or, you know, the patients that are really taking it, all these kind of different things. Mm -hmm. Capturing adherence is really a big topic. I know that when I worked on these HIV studies, it was, we had pill counts. So 
we had for each visit kind of, okay, he should have taken, don't know, 20 pills, but he returned, you know, too many and probably therefore he can maximally have taken 15 or something like this. And then you said, okay, 15 divided by 20, so you said 75% compliance. That was how we dealt with compliance. What do you think about that? Well, I think, unfortunately, you know, pill count isn't a very accurate measure of adherence, but it's still the most commonly used measure in clinical trials. And of course, like you say, it's, it's reliant on patients bringing back the packaging and they might do that. They might dump the pills before, you know, yes. studies <laughs> where we had some 110, 120, 130% adherence according to pill counts, because, you know, we had put extra pills in the bottles and patients didn't know that. And so they just dumped the rest out with whatever other pills they had left over. So <laughs> I would say that's that's not a great measure. And I wish that was spoken about more because I think, you know, sponsors might feel like they have ticked the box because pill count is in there. Yeah. And so it's also kind of understanding how it's collected. What kind of signals are sent to the patients? Do they kind of get some kind of bias in there yeah do, do they have an incentive to throw away all the pills because then they are not yelled at by the <laughs> by the yeah. physician these kind of things play a role really. mm-hmm. so what alternative ways are there to capture adherence well there really isn't a gold standard for capturing adherence and the measure is recommended based on the specific situation in which adherence will be measured um I think perhaps there's three sort of key steps. You know, the first step, of course, is to clearly define adherence and the outcomes of your interest to your trial. Um, we always use the ABC taxonomy, which was published by Espacomp and Virgins at Ireland, essentially breaks down adherence into three key behaviors. So it's the initiation of treatment, it's the maintenance of your prescribed treatment over time and then the point of discontinuation then the time period between initiation and discontinuation is referred to as persistent and this definition really applies whether it's self-administrated whether it's a supported administration perhaps a parent administrating a treatment to a child or if it's a healthcare provider administrating treatment in clinic and then of course secondly you want the measure to capture the adherence outcome as intended and produce the data you need for your analysis. And I'm sure you will agree, but I would say speak with the lead statistician before you have decided on what particular data points and what measures to use, because they will have invaluable advice on what they need and how the data need to be structured to work for the analysis. And of course, clearly define the objective of the data and how it will be used from the outset is absolutely key. And I think what measure is appropriate, like I said, is dependent on the context of your trial. Who are your respondents? Is it a patient? Is it, you know, who is that patient? Is it an older person? What's the dexterity like? Is it a young person? What type of drug formulation and administration is used and so on? You know, there are hundreds, if not thousands of different measures, self-report, digital technologies, smartphone app, claims and dispensing data. And, you know, it's really about choosing 
the best for your particular purpose. And then I think finally, and just as important, is that it's convenient and acceptable to the responder. And, you know, a measurement that is too cumbersome or is too intrusive or has some other adverse feature will give you an accurate or missing data. Or worse, you know, trial participants might discontinue the trial or the site might not want to enroll patient participants in the, in, in the first place, you know, because they know what it will take to respond to these measures. What are kind of ways we can encourage adherence in a clinical trial? Well, I think something really to highlight in, in relation to that is the insights directly from the patients. To do something about it and to support patients, we need to ask why. You know, if they missed or discontinued a, a medicine, what was the challenges that they had if they discontinued a trial? Why did they do that? And I think, you know, you could use questionnaires to capture quality of data and asking the why questions. And the newer method that we are increasingly using it for our sponsors is exit interviews. And so, you know, they're typically done at the end of the trial after the primary endpoint have been reached. And you spend, a, you know, maybe half an hour, an hour just having a chat about, obviously you have a, a discussion guide, but you ask them about the experience during the trial. And it's an opportunity to ask them about the treatment that they received. And I think once you start understanding the whys, that's where, you know, you, you can help and support patients. That's a good point. I think this getting firsthand experience about what the patients really care about mm -hmm. helps you a lot later on to, you know, for following up trials, see about kind of are there specific points you need to talk about, you need to set expectations, what are the things that you need to do later on if you have launched the product, increase adherence. Yeah, because in the end, if patients don't take the drug, stop the drug, it will not help the patient. Yes, it's, it's, it's that simple, yeah. And so we need to kind of have a really open and honest discussion about this. Yeah, mm -hmm. I know that perceptions can be very, very different. I once was working on a drug that had this was for psoriasis, and it has the this little side effect that the injection were a little bit painful. And there were some injection side reactions also. Not something that, you know, anybody in the safety department, the FDA, the email, whatsoever really cared about. Yeah. Mm. Oh, that's, that's minor. But in real life, it was a topic. And so don't think, yeah, like it's the same like with the, uh, with the oncologist that uh, mm -hmm. all his side effects should be bearable. It's about, you know, life and death. Don't. Just assume that what your point of view is, what your perception is, is the same for the patient. Yeah, totally agree. Yep, very good. Let's go. You mentioned kind of digital and smartphones and things like this. What have you seen there in terms of capturing or improving adherence? There is a lot. It's a fast evolving field. And in the early days, we have the microelectronic monitoring caps. So putting on medical bottles and it recorded the opening. And mm. now, you know, that those kind of technologies have extended to blister packs and there are dosing machines and 
the microchips that are embedded into the formulation of the drug. So it can be inside mm -hmm. the, the tablet that sends send signals when it's ingested. Obviously, if you have a, a delivery device, you know, an inhaler or like you mentioned, a, an injection pen, you know, then uh, digital monitors can be sort of embedded in there that send signals when, when the drug is administered. And of course, some of those or many of those comes with sort of platforms with uh, dashboards or interfaces for sometimes the patients so they can see data or, you know, in a trial setting, the site staff have access or and, you know, the clinical research organization that the sponsor works with might have access and so on. So it's a lot of the digital technology. And obviously, we also have all of the the applications on smartphones and tablets that you can use to self-record or indeed video recordings or sometimes yeah. the, the video, it doesn't capture the, the picture, they capture the movement. So you still have unidentifiable data of ingestion, you know, that yeah. people can use those interfaces on the, on the smart devices. Yeah, that is a way how you can directly connect, interact with the patient, mm -hmm. send some reminders, give some incentives so that's you know when they take it that they kind of see how they're improving mm -hmm. um, there's probably lots of lots of different opportunities to help patients be more kind of adherent for me one of the most interesting ones and you just touched on it there as well alexander but it's it's that you can combine data so you know you have these trackers where patients can track their adherence and that's captured within the system but you can also feed in data and you know sometimes that is about actually being able to connect to digital health records that it might just be manual entry but to be able to see how your adherence change over time and how your response change over time and you know how your then outcomes or even adverse effects or side effects change over time with your treatment that's hugely interesting and of course motivating for patients if it goes in the right direction and if it isn't going in the right direction then that's really something that the the patient and in particular the healthcare team and the prescriber needs to know. So yeah, it's about really, I think it's kind of to build up a habit of yeah. being adherence. I'm just thinking about the book that I read about habits, uh, atomic habits. Do you oh. know about that one? It talks about kind of the this four parts of a of a habit from the from the trigger up to the reward. Mm -hmm. And you know you can think about these four things in, in a similar way. If you want to have patients develop a habit of, of taking their medicine, I'm taking a pill every morning and I have a habit around it, be adherent. And so helping patients kind of establish these habits and have maybe technologies that support that, that's just really, really cool. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, these technologies also provide channels to deliver other information so you know habit formation is something which is really important and is a powerful what we call behavior change technique or you know yeah. the active ingredients in the psychological interventions but there are also other behavior change techniques that can be used so say it might be that the patient have certain concerns over side effects and some of that might be because of the experience they have experienced something, but it might also be that they have read something and it yeah. could be that that's accurate or not, you know. And if we have channels to connect with the patient to provide them with 
accurate information which is addressing some of those barriers that they might have in terms of managing their treatment and their disease or other health behaviours that they want to stick with around, but that could be diet or exercise or whatever it could be, that's really valuable to us as well. And I think it's important to sort of highlight that it isn't just about forgetting and getting used to something, but there is a lot of other barriers. It could be around your actual capability of doing something, you know, your dexterity, say, or it could be something in your environment, your support network and, you know, what we can do and support people there. And then, of course, you know, motivation is the big one. With, and the way that we work, we look at motivation as the sort of conscious ideas and emotions and beliefs that you have that drive your behavior. But also the automatic ones and, and habit would fall in that sort of automatic motivation that people have. I, I love that. It is there's so much kind of psychology obviously <laughs> that working with a psychologist will be super super helpful to increase adherence and maybe that's the one thing that you have the biggest impact on to help have a high probability of success for your study and especially not end up with a study in the end that is kind of yeah just wasted yeah, because of, of lack of adherence and I love that this also helps you to really understand what are will be then the barriers in, in the real world. I know that many companies have these patient support programs to help patients stay on treatment, remove all kinds of different barriers, and especially kind of for, for the more costly patients, oh. you know, for the more costly drugs. It makes a lot of sense to invest into these areas. And all the research, all the learning that you have gathered through your clinical trials, for example, working with Sprout, you can get so much knowledge onto making sure that your drug is then also effective in, in the real world. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think there is no arguing that the care and the monitoring that participants get within a trial setting is different from clinical practice. You know, it's often more comprehensive and that might influence patients' treatment experience. But there is still an opportunity to learn a lot about, you know, the challenges they had, the opportunities that they saw with the trial treatment, you know, the clinical outcomes of importance to them and understanding that. And, and what they think might be helpful for people who are prescribed this medicine in the real world, because, of course, they're the experts of their condition and they understand what it's like living in the real world with that condition and not having access to the treatment that they have just received in the trial. So I think that this is hugely valuable to support the development of support services that can be marketed alongside the drug and inform measurement strategies also for real-world studies. And um, yeah, I encourage people to take the opportunity to learn as much as you can from the participants in your trial. You know, it's not always that the way you measure things fit or capture everything that they want to say. And usually participants really value being able to share their experience in their own world with someone you know, and that that is captured and beneficial to their community out there. Yeah, where these exit uh, interviews really come into place, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Where, where they can be much more open in the way that they discuss their outcomes. You know, we, we use the exit interviews also to help interpret the results 
of the clinical outcomes assessments, of the patient reported outcomes measures that were used in the trial, because we can ask them what's the difference to you. <laughs> you yeah. know, we can help to, to provide further sort of validation and weight to those measures. And I think, you know, something which, which is a big difference in the real world compared to trials that a clinical trial is short term, you know, yeah. but the treatment is often lifelong. So over a lifetime, things change, you know, not just physically and medically, but are, you know, we spoke about capabilities and motivation and opportunities to stick with treatment recommendations change over time, your ideas and beliefs change over time. And that really needs to be considered when trying to understand adherence in the real world and from the perspective of the individual. Yeah, because if you have kind of a, a lot of patients in a clinical trial, you can gain kind of experiences from lots of different situations, from more older people, from pe people that kind of live in different circumstances, go through life crisis. And, and how do you then deal with these kind of situations? And you can take these learnings and to improve adherence and plan for contingency in the real world to ensure that, you know, there's always questions being answered for the, for the patients that you have a channel where patients can even ask these kind of questions. As a statistician, I have one question about the exit interviews. How do you capture the data from these exit interviews? Yeah, well, usually recordings, you know, an interviewer and sometimes the interviews are done by site staff. So then we would train the site staff to conduct the interviews. And so they we prepare a, a structured interview guide and we train the site staff to do the interviews and ask the questions. And they are then recorded, audio recorded, and that audio recording is sent for transcription. And during transcription, they make sure to remove any remaining identifiable information. And then those transcripts comes to us for thematic analysis. So, and there might be specific research questions before, like I was saying, for example, if there isn't enough evidence in terms of what the meaningful changes on a, on a particular mm -hmm. measure that have been used, we can explore that. But we can then also ask them questions around the experience with the treatment. If they miss doses, and we will say this is very common, you know, what was the circumstances around missed doses during the trial? Um, and we can also, also ask them questions about the, the trial design and, you know, how it was to actually participate in the trial, which, of course, can then be fed back to the sponsor so that they can use that to inform future trials to ensure that trials are, you know, over time becoming more patient-centric and, you know, really sort of become easier for patients to fit in with their life with then of course support their participation in the trial and their adherence to the trial treatment. Yeah, because that is one of the specifics about trials also that they can come with a burden to the patient and that can make patients stop the trial. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, I should have said that actually with the with the exit interviews that sometimes we do the exit interviews ourselves, but the process would be the same. Yeah. Awesome. That was an outstanding discussion about adherence, how we can capture it, how we can improve it both in clinical trials and in the real world, and how we can get much more understanding from the patients about what they are concerned about, what their problems are. And obviously, this is a big, big topic for anybody in clinical research. As we said, you know, even if you work in oncology or HIV or any of the other life-threatening diseases, don't think that, you know, 
compliance as a given. It's rarely a, a non-topic. Any final takeaways that you would like to give to the listener? Yeah, I guess around adherence, you know, and I think we didn't speak so much about the sort of adherence also from the patient perspective and where we might think that, you know, we should achieve the 100% adherence, you know, really maximize outcomes for, for an individual. You know, it's more about fitting it in with their everyday life. And that might not mean 100% adherence, even if that has an impact on on outcomes. And I think, you know, in the end of the day, it's an individual's choice to initiate, implement and persist with their treatment that they have been prescribed. And there's some exceptions, of of course, within mental health and also now with COVID, where people might have been forced to do certain things. But, But most of the time, people have a choice. And I think our role as healthcare providers and uh, medication manufacturers to ensure that individuals have accurate and understandable information to inform their choices, to support them to achieve treatment success, you know, in what treatment success means to them, and that we really listen and act when treatments need to change, you know, that we hear the patient's voice. Awesome. That is a fantastic statement. Thanks so much, Lina. For, for this discussion, we have a lot of references, of course, uh, linked to uh, Lina's bio, to her company, everything in the show notes. So just head over to theeffectivestatistician.com, search for Lina, for Sprout, and then you'll find that very, very easily. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Alexander. I hope you really loved the show. If you want to learn more about this, then follow Lena, follow myself on LinkedIn, and I'm sure you'll learn much more. And check out her company, Sprout HS, which is really, really cool. This show was created in association with PSI. Thanks to Rain and her team at VVS, who helped with the show in the background. And thank you for listening. Reach your potential, lead great science, and serve patients. Just be an effective statistician.